Welcome to the Kanoi Church Podcast. We're glad that you're interested in connecting through this teaching time. If you'd like to connect further, feel free to reach out to us through our website, kanoichurch.org. For now, enjoy this teaching from Kanoi Church, where our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Good morning. We are entering into our teaching time right now, and I'm going to invite you guys to go ahead and pull out your Bibles now and open them up to Genesis chapter 24. Uh, and while you guys do that, let me give you just a little bit of information. Uh, this is the longest chapter in Genesis, uh, so don't be alarmed. We're going to get through it, um, but this is the longest chapter in the, in the whole book of Genesis. This story probably happens shortly after the death of Sarah. When we read around this story, we know a couple of things. Isaac is deeply saddened by the loss of his mother. And we even learn at the end that he really has had no um, relief from that grief until the end of this chapter. Um, at, at the end of this chapter, we also know that Isaac is about 40 years old. So if we were to believe the Midrash, the Jewish and Hebrew commentaries on some of this text, that Isaac was about 33 when he was sacrificed, or, or was almost sacrificed, excuse me, in, in Genesis chapter 22, then it's about seven years since then. And uh, we can reasonably guess that it's been about three or four years since Sarah died as well. So go with me to Genesis chapter 24, and we're going to start with verse 1. Abraham was now old and had well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to the chief servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my own son, from the daughters of Canaanites, among whom I'm living, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son, Isaac. And so we'll, we'll pause here for a second. Um, we've been trying to uh, share kind of how old is Abraham all the way through all the stories that we've read. Abraham is probably about 140 years old right now. He calls his servant, the servant in charge of everything he has. And so I want you to think about the story of Pharaoh and Joseph. And remember that when Pharaoh takes Joseph out of prison, he puts him in charge of everything. And so uh, Joseph pretty much becomes second in command to Joseph in Egypt. That's kind of what this servant is like for Abraham. This is the servant that's in charge of everything. It's this Abraham's right-hand uh, man. And he, he says something really strange. Uh, when we read this, we're just like, what is going on here? It's kind of weird. Uh, he says, come and put your hand under my thigh. And so we, we think, okay, what is that all about? Well, if we think about it, um, there's this old tradition, and you put your hand out, and somebody puts their leg on top of it. And what's happening there is they're kind of pinning your, your hand from being able to move, right? I can't yank my hand away because there's something there. That's essentially kind of what's happening here is that Abraham says, look, I have something very important to tell you. And we all fall into this trap where somebody wants to talk to us and we go, yeah, 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 I got it, I got it, I got it. And we, we like are ready to head out before we've actually heard everything that's being said. And so this, this old tradition is a way of saying, come here, come close, put your hand on my thigh so you can't leave me. I have something very important to tell you and you're not leaving until I'm done. Uh, and so that's what's happening. Listen, give me your full attention. That's what we're seeing. The other question we're kind of left with at the beginning here is, um, why not the Canaanites? Why, why is Abraham so against Isaac marrying somebody from the, the Canaanites? Uh, and so there's a couple of reasons, probably. One, Abraham can probably see the path they're headed down. Remember that Abraham has been promised this land, which means that either these people are going to have to go 
or in the future, there's going to be some wars here. All right. So, so Abraham sees the path they're headed down. The other thing is that um, the people in this land, they don't worship the God that Abraham worships. Um, we talked about this the other week, but they worship gods like Molech. Molech who requires child sacrifice. And part of the reason that God even comes to Abraham and says, sacrifice your one and only son is so that he can show that he is not like Molech, not like these other gods of the land and of the time. Um, and so the Canaanites worship these other gods, not that same God. So Abraham seems to come to this understanding or this belief that the very best thing for Isaac is not to marry somebody who is uh, essentially a pagan who doesn't believe in um, God or Yahweh, the God most high that Abraham believes in. Um, it's to go get somebody from his own family. This doesn't mean that whoever they find from his family is going to be perfect, by no means. And Abraham is under the impression that his family is somehow necessarily better. Um, because we'll see in a moment here that the servant's going to say, well, what if I can't find a woman for your son? Uh, should I take your son to the land of your people? And Abraham's like, no way. Do not take my son back to those people. So Abraham's stuck in this place of kind of two worlds of like, I don't want my son to marry any of these Canaanite women, but I don't want my son to live among my people where I came from. Maybe the best scenario in Abraham's mind is God calling somebody out of the, the family that he came from into the promised land. That's the best case scenario. So I think that's exactly what he's trying to communicate to the servant. Let's pick it up in verse 5. The servant asked him, what if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country that you came from? Make sure you do not take my son back there, Abraham said. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land, and who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying, to your offspring I will give this land, he's going to send his angel before you, so that you can get a wife for my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, you'll be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. <laughs> so the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master Abraham and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. So again, clearly reiterating, Abraham does not want Isaac to go back to the land he came from and to live with his family. Absolutely not. Um, but he does want a wife to come from his people, a people he left 70 years ago. That's how long it's been since Abraham left home. So again, the servant's like, should I take him back if I can't find one? Absolutely not. If you can't find a wife, you're released from this oath. So the, the servant has kind of figured out these parameters for what he's promising Abraham he's going to do. Now here's an interesting thing we can do. If we, if we look at the story that we're reading this morning, um, we can see there's an analogy here of the characters in our story to some other characters in a bigger story. We can see that Abraham represents God, Isaac can represent Jesus, and the servant represents the Holy Spirit. And if we look at the story that way, and just remember, every analogy eventually is going to fall apart. They all play out. They're analogies, okay? And so you don't want to take it too far. But if we understand Abraham was God, Isaac is Jesus, and the servant is the Holy Spirit. We can, we can learn some interesting things about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's being sent out to look for the bride of the Son. And that's going to be part of our gospel this morning. Uh, because Jesus leaves the Holy Spirit behind when he ascends into heaven as a helper, as a servant. And 
the purpose of the Holy Spirit going with the disciples is to not just spread the message to the ends of the earth, but also to cultivate the church, the bride of Christ. But I'm getting ahead of myself. This is the gospel section. So that's going to come at the end. Um, the Holy Spirit, though, the servant here is being instructed. And so the Holy Spirit, in the same way, being instructed not to force someone if they don't want to come. The servant says, if I cannot find someone, what should I do? And Abram says, don't force them. So that's an interesting thing for us to note. The Holy Spirit is likened to a dove, uh, not likened to a bald eagle or a hawk or a vulture. Um, the Holy Spirit's likened to a dove. A dove is gentle. A dove is, uh, the Holy Spirit is someone that is going to prompt and guide. Uh, Jesus knocks on the door, but we don't serve a God. We don't have a Holy Spirit that's going to bust the door down. That's going to force anyone to come to know the Son. That's not the way it works. The Holy Spirit is not forceful in that way. And so if you are a person who has seen the Holy Spirit work in that way, it may not be the Holy Spirit. If you're someone who believes that that is how the Holy Spirit works, I'm going to ask you to come back to this text and many other texts to say, I, I'm not sure that I would agree with that. The Holy Spirit is not someone that's going to bust down the door and force you to do something. The Holy Spirit is someone that's going to, um, to guide us and direct us to to come alongside us, to guide us, but not force us. Let's pick it up in verse 10. Then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and left, taking with him all kinds of good things from his master. He sent out for Aram Naharam and made his way toward the town of Nahor. He had the camels kneeled down near the well outside the town. It was toward evening, the time the woman go out, excuse me, the time the women go out to draw water. Then he prayed, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, give me success today and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I am standing beside the spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a girl, please let down your jar that I may have a drink, and she says, drink and I'll water your camels too, let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. And we'll pause there. Interesting here, it's kind of a warning wrapped up here that I want to share with us this morning. Um, the servant prays to God, and, he's, and he prays to the God of who? The God of my master, Abraham. The relationship is between God and Abraham, more so than between the servant and God. And this is a common um, trait of the day. We can actually look at the life of Moses as another example of the way this works. And you think about Moses who goes up the mountain and gets the Ten Commandments. Who goes up the mountain with Moses? Do all the people, all the followers of, of God go up the mountain to get the, the Ten Commandments? No, it's just Moses that goes up the mountain and brings the Word of God. Oh, I can see it now. Do all the people go up the mountain with Moses? Or is it just Moses? It's just Moses that goes up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments and brings them back to the people. Uh, and so what we see is there are leaders, spiritual guides, if you will, that people follow because they don't have the relationship with God themselves. This sort of idea or ideology actually leads into the sacrificial system and the priesthood system, where the priest is the only one that can enter into the Holy of Holies and can interact with God, and then he brings back information or he takes sacrifice in 
one person interacts with God, not everybody can interact with God. And that's going to be part of our gospel section too. But um, what we see here is this is ending. Um, and especially in our churches today, it's still easy to fall into this trap. You have a pastor who prepares a message, uh, a pastor who can uh, kind of illustrate things in a new way, in a new light, or explain passages that you didn't pre- pre- previously understand. And it becomes very easy for us to go to the pastor rather than go to God. And I want us as a church to be cautious of that. Um, that is not what we believe. In fact, our Anabaptist tradition uh, would lead us to believe that in the priesthood of all believers, um, that you are as much a priest as a pastor or a spiritual leader is, that you can go directly to God, that you are the one that goes up the mountain and gets the word just as much as anyone else does. And in fact, the word that you bring down from the mountain is so important to the community as a whole because we all interact with God. Between all of us, we understand a picture of who God is better than when we got this one person that goes up the mountain. And in fact, I'm just going to say this too. It's not in my notes, but... Um, Moses said some things. Moses was the singular person that goes up the mountain to meet with God to bring information back. And Moses says some things like an eye for an eye, um, a tooth for a tooth, right? And there's a reason he says that, and that's a sermon for another day. But that's the picture of God that the Israelites have at that time. Jesus, when he comes on the scene, Jesus, who is introducing us all to this, this priesthood of all, all believers idea, who's helping his disciples have their own relationship with God the Father, um, Jesus says, hey, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you this. And so he corrects it. And so we have a better picture with the priesthood of all believers, a better picture with everybody um, understanding who God is and bringing it back to the community than we do when one person goes to the mountain to bring back the information. And so I just want to remind us of that in this passage because it seems to come up. Um, the servant, I want to believe, trusts in God because Abraham trusts in God. And what I also want to believe is that because of what happens in this passage, he begins to trust in God that much more on his own now because he's seen God work and be receptive to him. And so the servant kind of comes up with this this, uh, deal with God. He's like, look, I'm standing outside the well where all these women are, and if one of them comes up and I say, can I have a drink of water? She says, yes. And then she also says, uh, I'll, I'll let your camels drink water too. She's the one, especially if she's a part of Abraham's family. So this is kind of the deal he works with God. Let's see where it gets him. Verse 15, before he had finished praying, Rebecca came out with the jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor. The girl was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had ever lain with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up again. The servant hurried to meet her and said, Please give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said, and quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. After she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw more water, and drew enough for all his camels. Without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. Okay, let's pause there, because now we officially meet Rebecca. If you remember a few weeks back, we had this uh, paragraph at the end of a chapter. It was a little strange. It seemed out of place where it talked about Abraham's brother back in Ur having some children. Uh, And that's where we learn Rebecca's name for the first time. And we do the math, and we learn that Rebecca is Abraham's grandniece. Apparently, she's quite beautiful. And so let's remember the servant's prayer to, to the God of Abraham. Um, 
if if a woman comes up to the well and I say, can I have a drink? And she gives me a drink, that's a check. Does it happen? Boom, check. All right, great. All right, now, if the woman gives me a drink but also gives my camels a drink, that's another one. Does it happen? It does. Check. All right, score. Yes, we're good. We're moving forward. Okay, now, the final question. Is she connected to my master's family? Is she a part of Abraham's family? Well, let's keep reading and see. Verse 22. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took out a gold nose ring, weighing a becca, and two gold bracelets weighing ten shekels. Then he asked, Whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She answered him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son that Milcah bore to Nahor. And she added, We have plenty of straw and fodder, as well as room for you to spend the night. Then the man bowed down and worshipped the Lord, saying, Praise be to the Lord the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. The girl ran and told her mother's household about all these things. Now Rebekah had a brother named Laban, and he hurried out to the man at the spring. As soon as he had seen the, the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms, and he had heard Rebekah tell what the man had said to her. He went out to the man and found him standing by the camels near the spring. Come, you who are blessed by the Lord, he said. Why are you standing out there? I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. All right, we'll pause there. So Rebekah cares for the servant. And then Rebekah cares for the camels. And we find out she is a part of Abraham's family. And, and so, the, so the servant asks, okay, is there room at your father's house that we can come and kind of board our camels? We can stay for the night. And she says, yes. And so he gives her some gifts. Um, he gives her a gold nose ring and two bracelets. And I just want to say, we think it's a gold nose ring. Now, the word here is nezem, and it means ring. It means bracelet. It means, um, or it could mean nose ring. Uh, excuse me, ring, earring, or nose ring. I apologize. And... Um, we think it's an earring because there are still Middle, Middle Eastern traditions today that part of an engagement ritual is to give a gold nose ring. And not a, not a nose ring that goes here, but a nose ring that goes um, in the left nostril, sort of like we wear a wedding ring on our left hand. Um, now, that's enough about nose rings. I'm not like an expert in nose rings or anything. What's important about all of this is the weight of the gold that she's been given. Um, it's worth about $10,000 today. So just imagine what that sort of gold was worth back then. And you'll probably notice that the servant puts the jewelry on Rebecca already. And so Rebecca may think this is just a very wealthy stranger being very thankful that she was willing to feed, or excuse me, water the camels and give him a drink. The man, the servant might be thinking that this is the first step in bartering for uh, a bride. Could be either one. Regardless, Rebecca, when she has this experience, runs home. I mean, you put yourself in her shoes. What would you do if you went to a well, you met this wealthy stranger, he gave you this jewelry after you watered his camels and you gave him a drink. The first thing you're going to do is run home and tell your mom about what's going, what's going on, right? So she runs home and her brother Laban sees the gold. Now Laban is a guy that continues on in the story. And actually we see him as somebody who's tricky, worldly, greedy. In fact, he's going to play some, some nasty tricks on Rebecca's son in the future. But that's a story, again, for another day. Um, he sees the gold. He sees the money. 
he's like the cartoon figure that see, has the dollar signs in his eyes all of a sudden. And so he runs out to the well and sees the man. He's like, come home, come home with me. I, I already fixed the house up for you. Just come on out. You know, and so he goes home to, with a stranger to his father's house. Let's pick it up in verse 32. So the man went to the house and the camels were unloaded. Straw and fodder were brought for the camels and water for him and his men to wash their feet. The food was set before him, but he said, I will not eat until I have told you what I have to say. Then tell us, Laban said. The servant is on a mission, okay? He's taken an oath, and prior to any food or rest that he has, he wants to complete his mission. And so what he sees happening here is God orchestrating all these events. He made a deal with God, kind of a checklist, if you will, and God checked off, boom, 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 everything on the checklist with Rebecca. He wants to make sure that Rebecca's family knows his intentions of why he's there and also clearly share with them this testimony about what has happened that he he thinks is God orchestrated for sure. And so um, he wants to prove that God has his hand in this. So verses 34 to 49 actually recount the entire event, kind of word for word, everything that we've just read. The servant then repeats to Rebecca's family. And so we're going to skip over to verse 50, where we have Laban and Bethuel, having just listened to the story, they're responding. Laban and Bethuel answered, this is from the Lord. We can say nothing to you one way or the other. Here is Rebecca. Take her and go and let her become the wife of your master's son as the Lord has directed. Okay, pause there. So Laban and Bethuel, they are in agreement with one heart, one mind. God has his hand in this. And so... How can we say anything else? Take Rebecca uh, to your servant and, and to your master and go, all right? And I just want us to pause here for a moment and reflect. This is going to be our growth area, but testimony becomes so important here. The servant comes into the household, and the first thing he does is gives testimony. He bears witness to all of the things that have led him up to sit at this table with them right now. And so testimony, there's just so much power in that. That's going to be our growth area. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. Verse 52 when Abraham's servant heard what they said, he bowed down to the ground before the Lord. Then the servants brought out gold and silver jewelry and articles of clothing and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave costly gifts to her brother and to her mother. Then he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night there. When they got up the next morning, he said, send me on my way to my master. We can think of this as the dowry given to Rebekah's family. Um, from Abraham's fortune. Uh, and so a dowry in this time uh, is essentially used to replace um, the benefit that a child would have brought to the family. So Rebecca could have earned for the family. She could have done work for the family. She's going to be leaving to go become someone's bride. And so the, the money and the gifts replace what she could have brought to the family. So this is her dowry. Uh, and then we also see gifts given to Rebecca. And so Rebecca is no longer dressed as a daughter in this family who's working and going to the well to catch water. Now she is adorned and dressed as a bride. Um, so the, the, the arrangement's been made. They've all agreed. This is a God thing. Take Rebecca and go. It's all okay. And, and so the, the servant wants to leave. He doesn't want to delay leaving. He wants to fulfill his vow by returning to, to Abraham. So in verse 55, let's pick it up. But her brother and her mother replied, Let the young woman remain with us ten days or so. Then you may go. But he said to them, do not detain me now that the Lord has granted success to my journey. Send me on my way so I may go to my master. Then they said, let's call the young woman and ask her about it. So they called Rebecca and asked her, will you go with this man? I will go, she said. 
So they sent their sister Rebekah on her way, along with her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. And they, re- they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you increase to thousands upon thousands. May your offspring possess the city of their enemies. Then Rebekah and her attendants got ready and mounted the camels and went back with the man. So the servant took Rebekah and left. This is an interesting part of the passage. It really humanizes it. And on the front end, it's really easy for us to think, is Laban and Rebecca's family trying to be tricky here? Are they trying to pull a fast one over on the servant? Um, And I don't think that's what's happening. I think that this whole thing has happened so fast. If you think about the story, the servant showed up at a well. Rebecca shows up. She meets all the criteria. He goes back. He spends one night at Rebecca's father's household. He recounts all these events. And the family agrees it's a God thing, you can go. It's, it's just been, it's been 24 hours, if that. They've had no time to say goodbye to make their peace with the fact that Rebecca is leaving. And so I think they just want some more time. That's, so it humanizes the passage to me. Uh, but Abraham's servant's not willing to linger, is he? He wants to get on the road. He doesn't want to prolong the journey home. And so some of the commentaries that we would read on this particular passage would lead us to, to say, look, this is important for us to recognize um, nothing good happens after midnight. You ever heard that old adage, your, your grandpa or your, your parents, your mom maybe told you that growing up, hey, nothing good happens after midnight. Make sure you're home by then. Uh, it's sort of the same kind of thing. Don't linger when you don't need to linger. Don't wait when you don't need to wait. Don't make your presence be somewhere it doesn't need to be because when you linger, bad things can often happen. Um, don't stick around too long, essentially. Because how easy would it have been for Abraham's servant to be treated so nicely and so well and to get comfortable staying there with Rebekah and then not fulfill his oath or delay fulfilling his oath? He had a mission. He had an oath to fulfill, and he was going to get on his way. And so they they actually do something pretty interesting here, especially given the fact that the society that they live in is a very patriarchal society, meaning that women had very little rights. The servant and Rebekah's family sort of come into a disagreement, and they let Rebekah be the deciding vote. They asked Rebecca, do you want to go with this guy? And she says, yes, I will go. And so I want to pause for a moment and just reflect again on testimony. I'm going to say this one more time later, but how important do you think it has been that the servant has handled himself in a way um, that has shown to Rebecca and her family that he's pious, he's devout, he's trustworthy, he's religious? Um, it'd be silly of us to think that the testimony of the servant didn't have any impact on Rebecca's willingness to go with them. Testimony matters. Let's pick it up in verse 66 and we'll finish out, excuse me, verse 62 and we'll finish out the, uh, the chapter. Now Isaac had come from Beer Lahai Roy, for he was living in the Negev. He went out to the field one evening to meditate and as he looked up, he saw camels approaching. Rebecca also looked up and saw Isaac. She got down from her camel and asked the servant, who is that man in the field coming to meet us? He is my master, the servant answered. So she took the veil and covered herself. Then the servant told Isaac all he had done. Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah, and he married Rebekah. So she became his wife and he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. And here's the end of today's story. Rebekah and Isaac are wed. It's been at least three years since Sarah has died, and Isaac has not been able to get over it. He's not found comfort. He has just felt the loss of his mother so deeply. And, and yet, somehow here, in finding a wife and being wed, 
he finds comfort for the first time. And that's huge. One other thing that I want to note is some language that's present in this final part of the chapter that we don't see in a lot of other places in the Old Testament, especially. It says, Isaac loved Rebecca. Okay? That should tell us something about Isaac, one. Isaac seems to be a good man. He seems to be one who does love his wife. But there's a, there's a real love here. This is kind of an arranged marriage. Um, it's as much arranged by God as it is by Abraham and the servant. Uh, but there's real, true love here. And that's, that's huge. This is going to conclude our, our story of Abraham. Um, Abraham is still living in the next chapter. But the next chapter is, is about the death of Abraham. That's chapter 25. And I, I want to encourage you guys to read that at some point because I think it's, it's really good. Um, and I'll just I'll fill you in on the cliff notes really quick so that we can bring Abraham's story to a conclusion. Abraham um, lives for another 35 years after Rebekah and Isaac are wed. He marries again. He has some more children. Uh, and he takes care of those children. And he takes care of the people that he marries. Uh, he gives them gifts. But Isaac is his sole inheritor of his fortune and of his family, of his power. Upon Abraham's death, Isaac and Ishmael are reunited. What we don't know is if Abraham reunited them before his death or if it was his death that brought them together. What we do know is that Isaac and Ishmael together bury Abraham in the tomb with his wife, Sarah. And so Abraham is entombed in the promised land that he had bought in the chapter we read last time. And this ends the journey of Abraham. But the story of Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Esau and Laban continues on. And so I want to encourage you guys to keep reading. Keep reading with curiosity. Keep digging into the scripture and finding insights because it's all over the place. Keep considering as you read these things, where can I grow? And where is the gospel located in this particular passage? It's, it's wonderful. It's beautiful. So let's, speaking of growing in, in gospel, let's get into our grow section today. I've already told you before, the grow section today is testimony. In our story today, the servant gives an excellent testimony on behalf of his master. And part of the testimony that the servant gives is probably what makes Rebecca so comfortable to go so quickly with the servant to someone that she doesn't know and doesn't meet. It's, it's what allows her to say goodbye to her family she's probably never going to see again. It's part of the, what allows the family, Rebecca's family, to trust in this servant who supposedly comes from a relative that they haven't seen for, for 70 years. Testimony is very important. And we don't really have to stretch ourselves very hard to understand that the servant was giving testimony, was bearing witness on behalf of the master. And the truth is, you and I, we don't have to stretch, we don't have to make a, a massive analogy here, you and I are also bearing witness on behalf of the master. That's part of our role. And so testimony becomes incredibly important. I want to read to you a quick passage from this book this morning. This book is, boy... Can you even see it? There we go. It's called Dangerous Wonder. And it's by Mike Iaconelli. It's, it's a wonderful book. I'm going to read you just something short. But what I want to do is encourage you to close your eyes and picture what I'm reading. It was one of those snowfalls you never forget. Millions of white flakes filled the air, quieting the earth and swallowing the sounds. The resulting silence was thick with a texture you could feel. My nephew stood in the living room at the opening to our deck, a stranger to snow, his two years of life about to be altered irrevocably. His eyes were blank, unaware, his body clueless, his mind about to be overloaded with the electricity of discovery. In the dark, 
Mother had maneuvered herself onto the deck's two feet of snow to capture the event on video. Dad manned the sliding door, which had been unlatched for quick opening into the darkness. Uncle's hands were poised on the switch to the light for the deck, and Aunt was ready to lift her nephew into the mysterious new world of twinkling ice and frozen softness. The moment arrived. In a perfectly timed instant, the deck lights went on, the camera started recording, the sliding door swept open, and a two-year-old was transported from the world he knew to a world he had never seen. Wonder filled the air. His eyes stretched wide with astonishment, as though the only way to apprehend what he was seeing was for his eyes to become big enough to contain it all. He stood motionless, paralyzed. It was too much for a two-year-old, too much for an any-year-old. He twitched and jerked each time a snowflake landed on his face, feeling it tingle as it transformed from hostile cold to friendly warmth, caressing his face with tiny droplets of water. Just behind his large eyes, you could see the sparks flying from the cross-currents of millions of electric stimuli, overwhelming the circuit breakers of his previously small world. His mind was a confusion of strange, conflicting realities. White, cold, floating, flying, tingling, electric, landing, touching, sparkling, melting, causing an overload so great, so overwhelming, he fell backward, a slow motion landing in the billowy whiteness the snow tenderly embracing him. He had given up trying to understand snow and had given in to experiencing snow. It was a moment of wonder. The author here, Mike Iaconelli, shares his nephew's first time in the snow. This testimony will lead him then in the chapter that that, that comes from to concluding that just like his nephew had to give up understanding snow and just experience it, so too you and I can spend so much time trying to understand God that we forget to experience God. And so he encourages us to be filled with dangerous wonder as, as we experience God. There's a relationship between witness and testimony and understanding. I don't know if you've ever been called to jury duty before, but I want you to imagine a courtroom and your job is to watch all of the proceedings, to take in all the information and to try and understand the situation. If an attorney calls forth a person and asks them to give a testimony about what they've seen or heard or experienced, that person is called a witness. Giving or having testimony is all about witnessing something. What have you witnessed? What have you seen? God is, is taking what you have lived through and what you're currently living through, and he's giving you a testimony. He's allowing you to bear witness to something. But sometimes we have to be patient. We have to be willing to listen, to stop, and to watch in order to understand the testimony that God is giving us in order for us to understand what we're bearing witness to. And it might be something as simple as watching your nephew's very first time in the snow. And it might be something as beautiful as seeing your daughter open her eyes for the first time. And so this morning I want to read you something very short from the journal that my wife and I kept when we were in the hospital with our first daughter, Sage. It says this, Ah, but wonder of wonders. Today, Sage opened her eyes. 
both of them. She looked around at us for about 40 minutes. They're blue as most babies' eyes are, but wow, they are so, so good to see. Now we sit by her bedside, watching her breathe and twitch, looking at the monitors and holding her tiny hands. We talk about miracles and pray for the strength to have the type of faith that so many in the Bible have had before us. At this point, we know that there are at this point we know that we are no longer holding ourselves up if we ever were, and that we are completely dependent upon the Lord. This is probably where he wants us. Truth bears repeating, right? We're reminded that God trusted us with sage. Now we must trust him with sage. Witnessing that Sage opened her eyes and looked around and looked at us reminded us of God's goodness. It reminded us of God's faithfulness in a time that was very hard to remember that for us. It reminded us that God had trusted Carissa and I with this beautiful little girl. And it reminded us that we needed to trust God with this beautiful little girl too. Folks, there is a connection, there's a relationship between bearing witness, testimony, and understanding. So what are you witnessing? What are you seeing? What testimony can you give and how is that shaping your understanding of God? That's a word that we all need to hear from one another. Together, we understand better than we could if we were not together. We're going to be studying the book of Acts in an upcoming series, but I'll give you a little sneak peek this morning. In Acts chapter 17, there's a story about the Apostle Paul traveling into Athens. And Athens is an overly religious city. You may not think that, but there are statues and altars everywhere. Uh, Statue and altar to this God, statue and altar to that God. And part of the reason is because the Greeks at the time, the people of Athens, they want to make sure that they covered all their bases. If there was a problem with infertility, though there was a God for that. If there was a problem with um, war or peace, there's a God for that. If there's a problem with you name it, there's a God for that. And so they had statues to every single God to make sure they were covered. And one of the things that Paul sees as he wanders through the city is he sees an altar And the inscription says, to the unknown God, to the unknown God. And it's almost like a catch-all, right? In case we missed one of the gods we've heard about or one of the gods that we know, here is an altar to a God that catches anything we missed. It's sort of a hyper-religious society that Paul is in. Well, the scholars of the city, the philosophers, they, they hear Paul's preaching. They hear Paul talking about this God Most High, and more importantly, about this Jesus, the Son of the God Most High, the Son that died on the cross, the Son that forgives all of our sins. They'd never heard anything like this. So they invite Paul to come and speak at a place called the Areopagus. And this is a place of learning and education and philosophy. People debated with one another here. And so they say, Paul, come over to the Areopagus. We also call this Mars Hill. Paul, come to Mars Hill and speak to us about this so we may hear, so we may learn. Well, how is Paul supposed to speak to the hyper-religious? How is he supposed to describe Jesus and this God most high that he knows and cares so much about? Well, what has he witnessed? What is he, what is he, how can he testify to it? How can he help in their understanding? Remember, there's a, there's a relationship between, between witness, testimony, and understanding. So what does Paul say? He says, people of Athens... I see that you are very religious. 
I saw all of your statues and all of your altars, including the one that is to the unknown God. I want to introduce you to the unknown God today. I want to tell you who he is. Let me tell you about the Lord of heaven and earth and everything in it. Let me tell you about a God that doesn't live in your temples. Let me tell you about a God that doesn't need anything from you as though you could actually help him. Because in this God, we live and move and have our being. The people are so curious by all of this that they invite him to speak again. And there are people who on the spot turn their lives over to God. There's a connection between witness, testimony, and understanding, folks. We need to take the time that we have right now. And I get we live in a time right now where things are unsure, where you feel unsettled. But we live in a time that is slower right now than it has ever been that I can remember. Make the most of this slow time. What is God teaching you? How is God challenging you? What are you bearing witness to do? To, what are you bearing witness to? And how is God using that to shape who you are? Because you are God's witness in this place. You are God's witness. You are here on behalf of the master. So, would the master agree with the message that you're proclaiming? Let's finish up this morning with our gospel section. And, uh, and it's actually very short because the gospel is not hard to find today. Um, and, and we believe that the gospel is not just four books located at the beginning of the New Testament. We believe that the gospel is good news. And there is good news, there is gospel located in every text that we read, including the Old Testament and including this text this morning. So for our gospel, what I'm going to do is I'm going to encourage us to, to fly up like 3,000 feet. Okay, I think of my friend Jeff when I, I think of this because Jeff is a skydiver and, and he, oh, the things he must see when he takes that plane up, the things that he must see when he steps out on that wing to, to jump off and as he's parachuting down, there's only so much I can see from the road. But Jeff, he can see where that field meets that field. I'd never see that. Jeff can see, oh, there's a creek there. I never would have saw that from the road because it's, it's covered in branches and bushes and trees. Oh, Jeff can see where that person's house is, and it's actually really close to this person's house, even though by road it takes 10 minutes to get there. Jeff can see all sorts of stuff because he's, he's elevated. He can, he's high enough to see. See, when we fly up, our perspective changes. And so I want to encourage us this morning to get out of the chapter that we're in and fly up high enough that we can see chapter 22, chapter 23, and chapter 24. Genesis chapter 22 is the sacrifice of a son. Genesis chapter 23 is the death of the mother of Israel. Remember, where uh, Sarah was called the mother of Israel, just like Abraham was the father. Um, and in, in, ver in chapter 24, we have a bride being found for the son. So here's the gospel. Here's the good news this morning. Simultaneously with Jesus' death on a cross, something happens in the temple. In the temple, there is a most holy place that is separated. That's where God dwells. It's separated by a veil. And this is where man is allowed to be. One day a year, it's the priest. So it's one person. One day a year is allowed to cross over that veil. But no one else is. You and I, we wouldn't be that pe those people. We would never be allowed to be in the holiest of holies. We'd never be allowed to be in God's presence. 
But when Jesus dies on the cross, that veil that separates the two places is torn in half, forever joining the two places and no longer allowing the separation. It tears in two. With the sacrifice of the Son, after, excuse me, after the sacrifice of the Son, in Genesis chapter 22, we have the death of the mother. Now, after the sacrifice of God's one and only son, we have the tearing of the veil. It's another death of similar things. And let me tell you about the death it is. Symbolized in the tearing of the veil is, is the death of a system of a nation. Because God opens the door beyond one nation. In fact, he tells his disciples to go out and share everything he has taught to the ends of the earth. So it goes beyond a single nation. We also have the death of a system of people because no longer are we united by race. We're united by grace. And then lastly, there is the death of this sacrificial system, the death of this idea that there is one person that goes to the mountain to get the word of God and bring it back. There's one person who's allowed to cross over that veil and be in the holiest of holies. It's gone. It's over. The sacrificial system is, is kaput. It's done. And so then after the death of Sarah, remember that in Genesis chapter 22, after the sacrifice of the son, Isaac leaves the story. He's gone. And we have the death. And then in Genesis chapter 24, the son enters back into the story once more. You know, Jesus dies on a cross and he's out of the story. And then... What we celebrate on Easter is the resurrection of God, is the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus enters back into the story. The son enters back into the story. And Isaac enters back into the story, and Jesus enters back into the story with a very similar reason, to find a bride. And so Isaac finds Rebecca, and Jesus finds his bride in the church. You know, Revelations 21 tells us that the bride of Christ is the gathering of God's people. There's this city called New Jerusalem, and everyone in it is God's people. And there's no need for a temple. There's no need for a church because God dwells among his people. There is nothing separating them. They're all together, worshiping together. The bride of Christ is God's people, which means, and here's the good news, friends, you are the bride of Christ. We, as a community, as a church, are the bride of Christ. What better good news could there be that the Father has sent his servant to choose you as the bride? What better news could there be that God has always envisioned that you were the one for his son? What better news could there be that the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, wants you? So friends, take heart in this. Be comforted by it. Be compelled to it. And let us be witnesses of it. Let's pray. Hi, this is Pastor Nick. Thanks for listening. I hope something that you heard today was very helpful. If you want to connect with us further, feel free to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or our website, kanoichurch.org. Sure, I'm glad we're in this together. Music